It's tough to live by the code. I mean, it's real hard to live for something that you believe in. Billy the King turned around one day and seen how many of us was looking to him. He said, what's all this noise? Hi, everyone, and welcome again to an episode of the IMMP, the Intermillennium Media Project. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad, he's my son, and uh, we've watched another movie. Yes! All you noble knights and fair ladies, shine your armor, prepare your weapons, start your engines, wait, what? (laughs) Well, last episode, we talked about Excalibur. Yes! The... John Borman movie released on April 10th, 1981, about King Arthur. And today we're going to talk about a movie released on April 10th, 1981. Wait, it was released same day? Same day, and it's a movie about a, a troubled king who must overcome his own limitations and the forces that beset his court and triumph over them for the sake of his his people and his kingdom. Uh. We are talking about George Romero's Night Riders. Okay, I'm kind of excited because there's a lot of interesting things just in terms of, you know, design aesthetic that this kept up with. I mean, that moving red light really changed how you depict AI and other sentient machines in a lot of other... This is a different Knight Rider, isn't it? This is a different Knight Rider. Dang it. I- Although, <laughs> I understand that the makers of the TV show you're talking about had to pay uh, for a trademark license or to make the trademark license issue go away. Uh, had to pay George Romero or the production company something because this 1981 uh, movie had used that yeah, first. It got it like a year before. It got it earlier. <laughs> like a year earlier. But I'd never heard of this thing, ever. <laughs> like I've said, that's my favorite kind of thing to introduce you to, is one that is absolutely new. I mean, there's the things that have that, like, pop culture echo, that rippling effect that I always run into. And I'm somehow amazed I never heard of this before now. It almost had... Anyone who's heard some of the other stuff or heard me use this, it passes the Lego test way too well. This feels like something I could see a Lego set out of so easily, and I don't know, like, I'm so bewildered by this, because it's it's people doing medieval jousting on motorcycles. <laughs> that would be great Lego. You it, could put together Lego with a Knights and Castles oh, set yeah, th- and a vehicle set. You could absolutely build this. <laughs> so easily it's bewildering does lego still have that page where you can recommend sets for them to release i think they do i think they've changed it this might need to be put on you've got to get on there and recommend a knight riders set i'm george <laughs> i'm sure george romero would be fine with it if they pay him a, a royalty oh goodness i gotta i gotta take a look at that that might be necessary so this uh this movie again released in 1981 it stars uh, ed harris tom savini terrific portrayal of merlin by brother blue it's it's a it's an impressive movie and an impressive cast speaking for myself i saw this movie when it was when i was 15 years old within a month or two of when i had seen excalibur and i described last time how i i darkoed excalibur yeah 
I didn't darko this, but I but my parents were not interested in seeing this, which is probably a good thing because I don't think I would have gotten to see the end if they had been watching it with me. And this movie made an impression on me. I can imagine this would. And it made an impression on me, not because of the violence and the sex and the other things that are involved in this movie. It made an impression on me because of Ed Harris's character. Ed Harris is just one of those actors. There's some people who, like, look perpetually angry or, like, no matter what, they always look happy. They've got an emotion on your face. I don't know what is it is with Ed Harris in the later movies I've seen him in, but in this movie as well, he somehow has resting. I'm not not mad. I'm just disappointed face. He's got this like perpetual pondering, slightly soured mood as a base facial expression, which really works for this character. But everything I've ever seen him in, he has that kind of look to him. And I don't know what to say. It's, he he hits this he can hit a variety of tones with that he's a wonderful actor but he always just has this air about him and this turns up one aspect of that to 11 right i I think he's a very internal actor he's an actor who you can tell there's more going on inside this character than comes to the surface yeah and i think that is true in this movie and i think it's just as true in a movie like apollo 13 where in some ways it's there's 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 more on the surface yeah. And yet you can tell there's more going on under the surface as well. Stepping back to talk about George Romero. Okay. Filmmaker who made this movie. This is by no means what George Romero is best known for. He is best known for the horror movie Night of the Living Dead. Oh. And one branch of its sequels starting with Dawn of the Dead. Okay. And and I'm there. Maybe there are exceptions, but I always think of him as his and his movies as what started the the modern phase of zombie movies. Okay, where the the zombie aspect wasn't a supernatural horror tied into Haitian religions and and folklore, and instead was this scientific or pseudo scientific thing that happens to pe- thing that happens to people in large numbers and. The story then tends to revolve around those who are trying to survive in that environment. Okay. I've seen some of those movies. Not a big zombie fan as Me- far as your movies go. I'm not much of a zombie person either in that sense. I'm- but this movie, like I say, this made an impression on me. And I think this is a movie that Romero really cared about. I, mean, I think he would have to to make this happen. Oh, yeah. And it went through a lot of changes. Originally, his vision was he wanted to make... A period piece set in the Middle Ages, but portraying that world in a more gritty and realistic way. Oh. I don't know exactly how. I guess he, from that, he developed the story of these characters. This King William character that is portrayed by Ed Harris. And eventually it morphed into this. Because in doing some of the research, he got involved with the Society for Creative Anachronism, which is recreating medieval events and tournaments and and the like in the modern day and i think that is what led him to say oh maybe the setting of this is the modern day in something like this kind of group okay yeah i mean that's the interesting thing about this film this is a story that is 
is Arthurian in that sense. It is one of those tales. The fact that it's set in a a modern day setting is not actually important to its worlds to some extent. There's there's a bit of the clash of it of the fact that the modern day seeps back in and tries to do something. But the struggles in the humanity aspect are actually not tied into that. They are distinctly classic and they are distinctly like implying that people have struggled with some of these things forever. I'm I'm trying to resist the urge to compare this to Excalibur and all the way through this uh, podcast episode. But I do think that the way that Excalibur, especially as Merlin in that movie described it, there was a change in the world. There were the old ways and the druidic ways, and there was the new Christianized world, and there one was fading and one was ascending. I think that in a similar way, Knight Riders is portraying the, the conflict between two worlds. It wasn't so much one fading and another ascending, but one nested within the other and trying to deal with that fact. Yeah. To to give a little bit more of, of the background for anybody who hasn't seen this, and of course there will be spoilers. Our main characters are part of a medieval recreation group. They go around from town to town putting on Renfair-type medieval festivals. But the centerpiece of these festivals are the tournaments, the jousting on motorcycles. So it's it's one part Renfair, one part stunt show. A great description, yeah. Because you wind up with people in jester outfits dodging and doing obviously planned coordinated stunts with ramps and jumps and such as an opening act and then leading into this joust and i'm actually i really loved that this opened up showing this event going on but it also showed all of the preparation and it gets you into the mood by showing the artistry of it we see them painting but also sawing breakpoints into lances so that they break without do without being as harmful and being more dramatic. We see there's an entire plot point worrying about whether or not a weapon is too heavy. And if they've made something that shouldn't be used on the field, it's not suitable for a prop in that sense. We set the tone by seeing people hammering out leather work pieces with a stamp and forming things and laying out a table for for merchandise to sell and it's like that sort of creative stuff that sort of environmental setting with the making and the building and this almost behind the scenes aspect is so rarely shown in stories that even take place in those environments so i was really excited to see them acknowledging the craftspeople alongside then the performers but the drama between all of the different groups, craftspeople, performers, king, is part of what goes on here. And some of what you described is, is really important to the story. It's not just a, hey, look at this, even though it's kind of cool to see. The points about the weapons, especially, and some of the discussion about the different levels of armor that different people involved in this had. That's the first time we see this recurring theme of the conflict between the real world and what they are trying to portray in this. Because on the one hand, you're right, they have breakaway lances designed to snap before they would hurt someone seriously. They have weapons that are going to hurt but not injure because it's a show. And yet, it's actually a tournament. 
and the knights involved in this tournament, each one of them wants to win, both for the honor of it and because, not not just because of the honor of being the guy who everybody's coming to the show saw win, but they get they made a very careful point about letting the audience know that the winner of the tournament, the champion of the tournament, has kind of an elevated place in the court until the next tournament and gets out of some of the chores and gets to sit at the right hand of the king and all these things. So it's it matters to them within this little society that they have. Because this show, the people involved in this show, they are a little society of their own. And definitely this is also a story of found family in that sense. Because it's about these people who have who have all been drawn to this together as a group and they go as a group from town to town. And it's a it's a comedy moment, but it's also a poignant little moment of that comparison where the announcer is there telling it's like the winner will be given special privileges and such in the in our community and in this little aside right after one of them pulls up and says to the king if i win this i don't have to do dishes this week right and gets a little nod and then goes on and it's like the privileges are a real world thing. It's a real world level thing. But the honor and the meaning of that has been presented as this other thing because of that that difference and that connection between them. Their community responds in this way. What the community has to do is still, you know, real world mundane stuff. But there is an honor and a respect and a reasoning to that and they are fighting for that. That is this is how they solve those sort of things in that sense. This is what has brought them all together, that they respect this system that solves these simple problems for them in that sense. And something that impresses me about this movie and the way Romero made it is you take the setting we just described, and a lot of filmmakers and a lot of screenwriters would have told us the story of how this came to be. They would have told, would have told us the story about how Billy, King William, had this vision of people who could live outside of normal society and live by a code from the past that he considered more important and more real than the current world. And it would have shown how he started this and he gathered some people around him and how it grew into the size that we see it at the beginning of this movie. And that would not have been a very interesting movie to me. I would have watched it. I would have been interested in it. And it, Seeing the family grow in that way is not always the most interesting place to start. No, yeah. I mean, there's a reason why the, the, in the series Firefly, the out of gas episode, where we see flashbacks as to how everybody happened to join this crew, that doesn't happen until well into the series when we already know and care about these people. Yeah, it, it, there, this is not a story about that rise. It is about the story of the internal conflict that is just already there with this community is at a crisis point at the very beginning mm -hmm. because in addition to the value of the, the that's accorded to the champion of each tournament the king can choose to fight in a tournament mm -hmm. if he if he so chooses and if he sees a, a worthy opponent among those who who battled and if the king loses and is forced to yield, the person who bested him becomes king. And that has never happened. 
Although it's apparently keeps coming closer and closer because Billy has been injured. King William has been injured in previous shows, in previous tournaments, and never quite gives himself enough time to heal. And there are enough loyal knights to essentially, if he's felled, they surround him and protect him before and, and remove him from the field before the opponent can make him yield. But I gather it's getting closer and closer. And William keeps choosing to fight even though one of these days it's going to mean he loses his crown. Yeah, and I mean, there's this, they say so much of not, they don't have to explain too much. They kind of have a a nice little mix here because the announcer is explaining this to the audience at the event, but he's also explaining it to us as a voiceover. And these little things, as we're hearing about this, we see Billy, he's looking over people, and then... His his queen there is saying, you know, Billy, no, you're still hurt. Your left arm's still bad from the last time. And we we kind of are given all the pieces and we have to put them together ourselves in that sense as it presents the the risks here and makes us immediately unhappy that Billy chooses to risk himself again. <laughs> Even though we've never seen the other times. It hands you all the emotional consequence of him doing this again. Yeah, there's a lot of economy in those opening scenes and how much they bring us into this world, how much they tell us about this world, including those details about how they got to the way things are today. Uh, and some of that, you're right, is is we hear the announcer describing things to the audience at the show, and part of it is we see the behind-the-scenes chatter. We hear that from the characters as they talk to one another. Uh, oh, and speaking of the audience behind the show, pretty funny ca- uh, cameo. Weird cameo. <laughs> Stephen and Tabitha King playing uh, audience members. Stephen King is the one with the, um, the the speaking lines as hoagie guy complaining about the show and how it's all fake. Yeah. They they put a little bit too much in that of, of, of Stephen King in there, but I'm sure he was a big, uh, a good friend of George Romero's. And he kind of does serve a role of playing off a guy who is voicing all the negative and look at how silly this thing is while acting like an absolute you know he's there letting like sandwich fall out of his mouth as he complains <laughs> about this and is that you're seeing him just be messy and awful and it means that you're immediately connecting the the negative oh look how fake this is comments with a very unpleasant character. Oh. And it means that it's that it cancels those out from your head. It means you take it seriously because he plays an unlikable guy saying these things very well. You are right. I never made that connection, but you're right. It's genius. It's genius. He it, it's it, he he embodies the person who would say, oh, this is all fake and ridiculous, and who would take this seriously. And all you can think of watching him is, I do not want to be this guy. So by the time it wants to tell you this serious story of the people, you take the world they've set up for themselves absolutely seriously, thanks to Stephen King, which is kind of a wild way to do it, yeah. but it's really effective. I have a new respect for that weird little cameo. I still think it could have been shorter, but it was still good. Oh, absolutely. But we get, I mean, of course, you can kind of see how this is going. Billy goes in, he fights. Does he fight Morgan then? Yeah. He does. And that that brings up the, the main conflict that's happening within this society is like the, the, the best knight who consistently wins 
is Morgan. A guy named Morgan Le Fay, they even make a joke later, what he got into this book for the motorcycles, and only after he picked the name did he learn that Morgan Le Fay was a woman in the Arthurian legends. But still, it's a name that, that fits him. And this is played by Tom Savini. Yes! Tom Savini probably is better known to many as a special effects makeup and prosthetic artist who did a lot of work on George Romero's movies. But he also had some key roles in movies by Romero and by others, often in the same movies where he did uh, prosthetic effects and makeup. But he, he is well cast in this. He's, he's the Black Knight of this organization, and he is, he, is, he is ambitious, and he's also capable when it comes to fighting. And he does have respect for the community. He's just, got, he's just not as completely invested he he's he's in the group and he respects it but he's also got ba- uh, other ideas that don't quite align and we see at the beginning he is very worldly he is he has he has the most decorated and fanciest armor which seems to be semi built by him he is picking the dramatic heavier weapons he's very much playing a to use a wrestling a professional wrestling term the heel character this bad guy character who's supposed to get the the audience cheering against him and rile them up for that reason he's this this intimidating black knight who like you're who's supposed to make the other guy look like this brave underdog but he's very good at this he's a good kind of ruthless fighter on the field and that means he keeps winning he's also the worldly one when it comes to that friction between king william's kingdom and the real world of 1981 in that early in the the movie they're being shaken down by a local sheriff's deputy they have a permit to use the field and put on the show that they have have done for paying customers and but he's saying you know you've got to we're going to shut you down unless you bribe us he doesn't he, he practically says that and morgan's view is let's just pay him it's it's not worth the hassle not to. We'll pay him a little bit. It'll take a little bit out of our profits. We can go on with our show, and we won't be hassled. And William will not, because it's against his code. If Morgan is worldly, William, Billy, is very much not. The movie opens with us inside of a, of a dream that Billy is having about a crow. And then we see him flagellating his back while standing in a cold river before he puts on his clothes and and joins the rest of the group for the day. Mm -hmm. He lives off in a different world in many ways. He very much does. And so for Billy, it's about honor. It's about about the respect. It's about this this greater-than-himself aspect. And for, for Morgan, this is entertaining. This is entertainment. He is a performer. And he is good because he can rile up a crowd and he can understand the people out in the audience while Billy is focused on the knights in the tournament. He almost doesn't care about the audience in that sense. Yeah, they are a necessary condition, putting on the show, selling tickets and all of that. It's just one of the things that's necessary to maintain this community that he wants to lead and live in. But the community is what is important. and. 
I'd say for Morgan, the community is important, but in, in a different way from Billy's. The community is important to Morgan in a, in a more concrete way. What's it like for us living in this world? And he is a selfish guy. What's in it for me living in this world? He's not about having an abstract code and suffering many forms of violence and indignity and deprivation in order to live up to that code. Mm-hmm. And Billy is definitely about that. He will put up, and he will expect others to put up with all kinds of things in order to maintain this code. And when Billy gets struck down and there is, and gets hurt fighting Morgan now, there is, there is you know, drama and tension and some very, very violent uh, bike attacks. And this is a very, like, when they do an action fight scene in this movie, it is harsh it is action stunt performance but i i had to ask us to pause and look away at some of these things just to back up overall because there are some moments where this is visceral this is uh, this is not a there are not as many casualties of war as you see in things like the excalibur and the other you know arthurian movies you might think of with swords on a battlefield but you see a lot more people just doing things that look like they will hurt or get them seriously injured. And there's a lot more moments where I was flinching at what I was seeing in these fights. And some of like when you see Billy get hurt, I'm like, oh, my goodness. You kind of get a little bit of the a feeling of, of what would it have been like had Romero made his period piece middle medieval movie. Because I think one of the things that he would have done is portray the Middle Ages in a, you know, this is not, this is not speak forsoothly and bang your swords together. Fighting with swords and maces is nasty and, and as you say, visceral and people get hurt in really, really, really bad ways. We don't see that here because it's a show designed as much as possible not to hurt people seriously, but people still get hurt. People and they still show get hurt. it. In oh, a, yeah. they, they show a lot of this in a very direct, very dramatic way. That there's there's not as big a line as you might think between this quote unquote show and real combat. And there is this big dramatic moment of you know the community like you know protect the king. You know we can't let Morgan have him yield. We can't let Morgan become king. And, and that's like woo. You kind of get the sense that that's for the sake of the audience there in the field, that, oh, we, we can't let the Black Knight take over from the good King William. And yet you also get the impression this is a serious thing for the people in this community. They do not want to suddenly have to follow Morgan. And they would because of the rules and because of William's code. And there's also definitely a, like, this has almost happened before. This is not the first time Morgan almost took the crown. <laughs> but, you know, we get that recovery. But the line that really got me that I kept going back to after watching the whole thing was after when Billy has been patched up by their medic, Merlin, who is kind of spiritual advisor and certified doctor, which is very smart. Billy goes on this little tirade later about, like, why we're doing this. I think that's right after there. But he says, I'm here to fight the dragon. We never get a line of that, but that's very much like Billy. I think he thinks of the outside world as a dragon that he must be fought off. I think so. I think for him, the dragon is the embodiment of anything that would go against this code of honor that he lives by. Yeah. And that includes most of the outside world. 
partly because the outside world is mainly represented by people like the corrupt sheriff's deputy. And they do have a lawyer, this motorcycle riding smart guy who is kind of their buffer between Billy's world and the real world. And he's the one who manages the contracts and gets the permits and uh, and all of that. Their lawyer, he doesn't have the hat. But there's something about the way he presents himself that feels like he rode in out of a, like a gunslinging Western (laughs) on motorcycles because he's got this, like, I'm also slightly detached from the rest of my world, but mine's just a little bit closer that I can relate as a, as a go between. I like that. Like you tell me he's going to ride off into the sunset, like with a, wow. I'd be like, okay, no, that fits that guy. It's a little bit different, but he, he can get on the wavelength. But, so, yeah, he helps keep the dragon at bay by, by knowing how to deal with it. The dragon, as you say, being the outside world, but Billy is always on guard against it. And he's afraid that any, any breach, any decision to pay off a corrupt deputy, any cha- decision to change how they run their tournaments for the sake of selling some more tickets, anything like that would be letting the dragon win Mm -hmm. and would be failing as a knight and as a king. And from there, we kind of get a couple of different conflicts and things that all combine and come to a head at the end of the story. But we get issues of the, the salespeople and the other people who help run the show that aren't the knights performing the stunts are running into trouble about like how much they can sell for and trying to focus on the the commerce aspect that they're maintaining and managing. And when they start having worries about that, they're shut down by Billy as it being like n- the not important thing to focus on. And it also shows that this is not an egalitarian community. It, it kind of, when they're not in the middle of a show, it has a kind of a hippie commune vibe. But they make it clear during this meeting that you're talking about, the knights are treated better than the merchants. And not everybody necessarily gets the same amount of spending money, unless I'm mistaken about that. But yeah, Yeah. everybody gets some spending money out of their their take. And I'm not sure that that is equal. It doesn't sound like it is, which really upsets them. And, And Billy doesn't when he comes in and kind of interrupts this meeting and he's furious that the meeting was happening before he was able to join them and that some of the the people who should be on the council are not there yeah because he's he's talking about like a council meeting and these other people are having like pretty much a finance meeting about their small business and he's no this is a council meeting and you're doing it wrong and he doesn't try to allay anybody's concerns about this he just says Nobody's coming to buy your pots or buy your leather belts or to hear your fortune telling stuff. They're coming to see the knights fight. They're coming to see the tournament. That's why the knights are more important. And he makes no bones about that. Yeah. And that is, yeah, that's part of the world he's trying to recreate. And he is oblivious to the fact that you know the Middle Ages were not necessarily a great time to try to recreate. They were not necessarily noble in every way. Yeah, he's... It, it's kind of showing Billy having a blindness to like him, him fighting off the dragon is also causing a blindness to the people in that sense. Yeah, he's tr- he's, he says he's trying to fight the dragon. I think he's just choosing to ride another dragon. 
Yeah. And he cannot see the dragon he's riding on quite as clearly as the one he's fighting. No. Um, some other storylines we've got are uh, some relationships in the group. We've got uh, one of our noble knights, who is kind of our our other main lead character in some ways. I mean, I guess we've got three. We've got kind of Morgan, we've got Billy, and we've got Alan, our other knight here. And Alan's sort of the the Lancelot character. Kind of. He's also got, like, everyone else has much, like, like grander armor. He's got this kind of plain leather padded thing going on. He doesn't have his... De- his bike is nice, but it's not as decorated, not as as fanciful. He almost looks like he could ride away from the group and not be out of place in the rest of the world more than any of the rest of them in terms of the design and the way they're showing him. But he meets a girl who came to this the first show we see them put on, who is there fighting with her parents, and they get together and she runs off with him and the group. And they make it clear that this isn't just somebody who's mad at her parents. She's 18 years old and her father is physically abusive to her mother and probably to her as well. Yeah, it's not, she's definitely, she's running from honest problems going on, but she kind of joins in and becomes his, his lady and is kind of joining the community and becoming part of it. And there's this tension with Alan between happy to have her there, but also unhappy about taking her away from the world and bringing her into this in some ways. He is not so invested in William's kingdom that he sees it as a, an unalloyed good bringing someone else into Billy's kingdom. And yet, and, and, and she is a responsibility, but she's one that he is happy to, to take on. She also plays a good role as an audience surrogate. As he explains the way things work to her, we learn a little bit more about how this community works. Mm-hmm. And we get to see the, uh, her kind of starting to integrate and also bringing them through like bringing other influences in and being the person to make a misstep that would then cause people to challenge things and question things and all that sort of aspect. She's an agent of, of change in some ways with some of her actions and seeing how Alan will deal with this relationship and using that as a gauge for how Alan is invested in Billy's community is one of the stories we've got going on. We've got a story with Morgan and one of and the head uh, bike repair yeah. lady. Angie, I think her Angie, name was. Angie, who is, they've got this, they love bikes and whether or not they're together and whether or not they're happy with each other is another, like, one of these litmus tests of the community. Because she's almost even more disconnected from the noble knight aspect of this she's here to fix the bikes yeah she's wearing you know coveralls and, and slinging wrenches and keeping the bikes maintained and that's her part of this world is oh it's a world that is, is revolves around motorcycles and i love motorcycles and maintaining them and that's also what brought morgan in he says and i showed up for the bikes i didn't know any about any of this medieval stuff at first and yeah it seems like they are together but he frequently cheats on her with whoever he meets which there's i mean hmm and she kind of rolls with that because at the beginning of the movie her self-esteem is not very high but that changes over time yeah 
And our last pairing is actually an interesting one because it's much more social commentary based, where we have our announcer, our Pippin, Pippin, who is kind of the voice of this community to the outside world. He's the one telling everybody, announcing the fights and everything else. And we learn about Pippin and the fact that he is questioning and eventually comes to terms with being gay and finding someone else in this community who is interested in him and they get together and it's kind of he's finding something else in here because this little community isn't concerned with that the way the outside world is he's finding something else within this because it's protecting and it's allowing him to be that yeah his experience of this in 1981 within this little community i think is very different than it might have been in a lot of places especially the small town america where a lot of this is taking place it would have been in in that environment in the real world in 1981 Mm -hmm. so in some ways that gives us another like look into how this community is operating and interacting and what it's providing to its people this this protection and this difference and this safety from the prejudice and the issues of the outside world we've got alan and his relationship which is crossing the line and towing it between the two worlds and we've got morgan's relationship where morgan is dealing with all these things outside but his relationship is very much one that would be him and angie are very much something that you'd see in the outside world and their problems are not things rooted in this world of you know knights and honor it is separate from that yeah there's much more of a sense of she's a bike mechanic and he's a performer who dresses up for a living as opposed to either of them being people who live in this world in the way many of the others do So these three relationships going on and changing and, you know, those plot lines throughout this story act as three pillars to see how this community is interacting and affecting its people. And there's also the relationship between Billy and his queen, Lynette. Yeah. Which that kind of ties more into the grand story of the group in some ways. It does. And she helps with the exposition, calling out Billy's failings sometimes and his his rash decisions and there's a relationship change toward the end that i don't think they did enough to set up to really earn it oh not at all i mean i mentioned alan being the lancelot sort of character and in the end he winds up with lynette yeah i mm. That seemed forced to me very much maybe there was more maybe there was more development of that because i have read that the original cut of this movie, yeah. the original rough cut of this movie, was 17 hours long. What? <laughs> now, very often, you know, the rough cut is really long, and the process of making a movie is editing. Editing is filmmaking. And they trimmed it down to... 145 minutes? <laughs> was that all? Yeah, 145 minutes. All of this story we're telling you about is possible in this, because I will tell you right now, this is not a tight-packed movie. This movie is full of story, not because it is a it is a one story told tightly, but because it is a group of looser stories in terms of how you know, quickly it decides to present its pieces. 
arranged Tetris style into the back of one of the the vans they used to go from event to event. This is I I I swear they moved from plotline to plotline in an almost episodic fashion. You could have put in commercial breaks and told me we're watching the next part in, uh, in a week and I wouldn't have been confused because this has enough breathing room inside its storylines to do that. It it is the kind of thing that today could and might be made as more like a Netflix series yeah, or another streaming service series, as opposed to trying to get it all into a feature film of a arguably reasonable running time. Yeah. And, yet- mean, and there, there's, there's other side stories we haven't even mentioned yet. Smaller running plot lines of characters <laughs> and interactions that pop up more than once and might not even get as clean a resolution as the ones we've referenced. But they're just there for world building, character building, and interaction. Like the the entire things with the friars and the monks. <laughs> yes, we do have uh, Friar Tuck, guy yeah. named Tucker, who joined as Friar Tuck. No, he's not a real priest. No, he's not celibate or particularly uh, uh, pious. No, <laughs> and has a gr- a great facility for. Delivering what appear to be ecclesiastical gestures in a way that conveys very different kinds of meaning. (laughs) Oh, yeah. He's this weird mix of, like, friendly monk and bouncer. But once you've got all those pieces, you can kind of, like, the story is about telling this community and how it evolves. And Billy, who's there, like, having visions of a black bird and increasingly taking risk. And it's him kind of falling apart to some extent and the community he's built up the the kingdom that he is ruling dealing with the fading of the king in that sense and things get fragile enough with morgan's impatience and ambition billy's very hardline insistence upon this code that he he insists upon living by and insists this community be structured by it's very brittle, so it's ready to break when there's any outside pressure. And that outside pressure comes in the form of TV network people and booking and publicity people who come in and want to take this show to the next level and start booking them in Vegas and in big cities rather than just these small town carnivals that they put on themselves. And Morgan's all for that. Just like he was all for paying off the sheriff's deputy, if that's what it took to keep their show going. And Billy, of course, does not want anything to do, to do with that world. As a performer, Morgan almost approaches it with a, well, this is the obvious next step. This is what we're going to be doing, right? And it is that is world shattering to Billy yeah. in a way that cannot be ever approached. It is It is a blasphemy. Because for Billy, this is a way of life. And for Morgan, this is a craft and a career, and it's showbiz. Mm-hmm. So Morgan leaves with a bunch of knights. A bunch of people join him, including Tucker. Including Tucker, including um, the sound guy. Yeah, their, their, their last show, when half of the group has already decided to leave, is this horrible scene of the entire thing collapsing like set pieces we saw being used before being destroyed in bike chases as over eager people who are watching show up with their own bikes 
because there's a there's an audience participation like bikers in the area can come you know lance a a gourd that we've got hanging you know to practice what we do and kind of you know join us for a moment but people have shown up hearing about them now they're they're getting notoriety and they're showing up with their own armor and homemade weapons and that bothers billy and that bothers some of the other people in this group because from the performer side, we didn't vet these things. And from Billy's side, these people have not proven that they're worthy to wield these things. They're they're not knights. They shouldn't have these things. And so those people come charging in, and Morgan and his group go charging out. And in the time it takes for Billy to look in on one thing, kind of he has to step out of being king for a moment to deal with the sound booth going wrong. Going into this truck and dealing with technology things that almost seem un- uh, that almost seem foreign to him in him trying to get this to work right and as he leaves for just a moment his kingdom collapses yeah and the safety measures that we saw in the first show that at the very beginning of the movie they're being ignored or forgotten so audience members have been injured and the world collapses on this and from there, we see Billy trying to recover and having trouble with that. Yeah, he just decides, we're going to stay put, we're going to stay camped here, and we're going to stay here until the group that left comes back, because I know they will. Mm-hmm. He and, is so certain. And not everybody is as certain, but everybody who stayed agrees to stay put with him, while Morgan and the people who followed him have gone off to do photo shoots and hang out in swimming pools with network TV people and generally live the kind of life that represents everything that Billy wanted nothing to do with. And they are very quickly given fancy new costumes and zooped up bikes that match and taking very awkward photo shoots and all sorts (laughs) of things. And I think that the acting by Tom Savini in this whole sequence of the movie, is very good. Yes. Because without much dialogue, we start to see him question this. Start to see him question the value of this. Start to see him ask himself if if this is what I wanted and is this worth it? And as he's just kind of, you know, living the life he was thinking he wanted and such, he actually winds up on the receiving end of some of the personality things we saw him showing in the beginning of the movie. He he's on the receiving end of people who are treating this the way he was speaking to Billy earlier and are treating him the way he was speaking to other people earlier. And we see him just just drop just this kind of like horror at it kind of come over him. And he rallies his people back and does exactly what Billy said and returns. But not on his own. But not on his own. And we see the, the, the group that followed Morgan start to fall apart among themselves and trash hotel rooms while they're fighting with one another. And that falls it's, apart. It's, it's, Morgan it's a, isn't leading them in any meaningful way. In a weird way, it shows that this movie is very much a banned biopic in some way. Yes. Where the, the, the bassist and other members of the band leave to start up another thing and they're... Their spin-off band doesn't go right, and they come back to this lead singer who's been the the, the dreamer of the group the entire time. Yeah, that's a great comparison, and, and that biography of a rock and roll band. 
But Morgan does not decide, finally, on his own just to go back. Alan comes to get him. Alan first takes this girl that he met, Julie, back to her home. And I've got a problem with that. He just sort of brings her back to this abusive household and leaves her there as if that's the right thing to do. Even if you don't think she should be part of this pseudo-medieval community, maybe there's something better you could have done now that you have turned her life upside down. But aside from that, after that, he goes and finds Morgan and has this little speech to Morgan about there is one kingdom and there can be one king. And the clear message is, you know, if you want to be king, you've got to do it right. You can't just declare yourself king of your own kingdom. So Morgan comes back. Mm-hmm. And we see him come back. And it looks like he's abandoned his other people. And then we see them come two by two. And they all arrive back. Great scene as we see the Alan and Morgan and... Uh, I'm trying to remember which other knight. third guy. Was it Stephen or was somebody else? It's one of the other knights, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if that was the lawyer, Steve, but it was somebody uh, else with Alan. But yeah, Morgan joins them and then some of Morgan's people. And eventually it's all of the ones who left in their new Hollywood fancy bikes and armor that they were given by the people who are going to send them to Vegas. They arrive and they are... They are ready to rejoin the kingdom. And Billy has this moment of triumph of like, yes, that's exactly what I thought it would be. It's what I knew would happen. And around that time, I believe like during the show, they come back and then perform in is when things come to a final close for Billy. Well, the next day, well, they, they spend the night after Morgan comes back deciding how they're going to run the tournament the next day Mm. because the next day they're going to have a tournament there's not going to be an audience oh yes it is just going to be our community using the way we decide this to decide this who is going to be king Mm. and they lay out the terms of how nobody none of us are planning to yield so how do we put a rule in place so that nobody gets hurt and yet there's a clear victor for any given conflict and they decide on that. Any, any knight who is just separated from his machine is out. And Alan also asks Billy to abide by the rule that you have people here who are loyal to you, who will champion you. Let us fight. We will fight for you if you promise to stay on your throne and preside over this without insisting on coming out and fighting yourself. And Billy agrees to that. Mm-hmm. partly because it was I think he recognizes the importance and the, the, the reasonableness of that request and partly because it was presented ha- to him in a way that was in keeping with his code yeah you know this is this is the way Billy thinks things should be done and it is being respected and he respects it back in that sense and there's another character we haven't mentioned oh yes and that is the bird the crow the bird During that final show when everything fell apart, after which Morgan left, one of the townies who showed up, or somebody who showed up among all the townies, was someone with his own bike and a helmet and a breastplate with a black bird painted on it. When we see Billy and the the crow fight during that, but later on, he becomes sort of the 
he doesn't talk, so he's not an advisor. It's like he is the witness. Yeah. He, he, he is the person who has to be there with Billy as he goes through whatever he's going through. But his presence is a part and parcel of what Billy is dealing with and how he's dealing with it for the rest of the movie. He is very much, you know, he's very much like death in the seventh seal for Billy as the knight <laughs> in that sense. He is here. He is to witness things. He is to see things are done. And he is, he is this presence alongside this knight as he deals with things. But in the, and then at the end, there is this tournament and the crow and Alan and many others are fighting on the king's side and Morgan and the people who are following Morgan are fighting on Morgan's side. And this is going to decide who's going to be king. Mm hmm. And it's it's a long, but I think well shot. And I don't know that I would shorten that battle very much. There's some scenes I think could be shortened, but yeah, it, it could be. It, it, it's also little. another one of the violent stunt performance shows. There's a lot of like throwing chain wheel chain whips at people's front tire and flipping oh, yeah. bikes and such, and you're like, oh my goodness, that could do bad things to a spine and stuff like that, but. It, it comes down to a very like one man drops and another man on the other side drops off their bike kind of fight to the wire. And in the end, it comes down to Morgan on one side and Alan, Billy's champion on the other. And I don't think we should say. I don't We can't talk about the rest of the movie if we don't say. I guess not. I feel like we shouldn't. Okay. Second spoiler Just, yeah, warning. Huge spoiler alert. Um, wow. Skip ahead uh, if you uh, if you don't want to know how things turn out. Morgan wins. It's a close battle, but Morgan wins. Mm-hmm. And he wins the crown. He does, and immediately, like we've learned, like he has been, it has been proven to him the value of this community in that sense. And Billy Browns Morgan with this. Fascinating combination of sorrow and relief. Yeah. Again, this is one of those things you can just see it in the way Harris is performing this role. He crowns Morgan, and Morgan is weeping. Morgan, this means so much to Morgan, more so than anything he could have gotten from his attempt to go off to Vegas and be with the, the fancy publicity people, more than any of that ever could have given him. This means something to Morgan. It's, he's finally recognize the value of this community and we see the we see from here this is where you know alan and the the former queen are together kind of both people who cared for billy i guess is part of heather like that's yeah. where it's like that's uncertain right and it's done with some gestures of essentially gesture billy gesturing to the queen yes you should go be with alan <laughs> And I have a feeling that there's more to, to feel like that's part of what got cut. Yeah, there's more to set that up and more, more to make that make sense that didn't end up in this final cut because that mm -hmm. does seem weird and forced. Are you two crazy? How could you not see this relationship from the beginning of the movie? I mean, from the very beginning, she was in love with Alan. But how could she give up the king who she obviously had that respectful love that supportive love but when we first when she first meets alan in the movie it's like big smile alan so glad you're back 
she's in love with him, but it's completely different from what she feels for the king. This is why I like the fact that Mrs. Darling Life joins us to watch these movies. Yeah, I didn't get any of that, but mom's absolutely right. Oh my goodness. She will pick up things that are are so important and sometimes go right by us. (laughs) So so thank you very much. Thank you. That was an important addition. Ah, dang. Ah, dang. I'm going to have to rewatch this movie. (laughs) Oh, what just happened? Okay. But but we get this. This is where Alan and the Queen, uh, you know, get together, as as they've been been showing that they're going to as they were always destined, destined to, to be. Do, and we yes. just didn't know it. Uh, Angie, who's been having trouble finding a place, finding this connection, has like Morgan came back and kind of apologized to her and presented this and. She is taking up the mantle of queen now and is kind of accepting this community herself. And we see that little bit of a change with her. Yeah, part of Morgan's recognition of the importance of this community and what he had and and gave up was also recognizing the value of her as a person and as a companion and as his queen. Mm -hmm. It's very much, of course, obviously a, a prodigal son sort of story of someone who only by leaving behind what he had does he realize its value and billy leaves he and the crow he and the bird and the bird leave and kind of the way we started by following billy we end following billy as he goes out into the world and makes good on his his code and his stuff against people like the the sheriff who had threatened and beat his people and demanded payment. And we also see him go up to the fan who'd come up who'd come up to him and wanted to acknowledge him as a performer that he'd rejected and he thanks the kid in yeah. his own way. He he had rejected early on this little kid who just wanted an autograph in a cycle magazine that had a, a photo feature about the night riders and billy was furious about the fact that the feature had been run with photos of them and rejected the kids interest because it wasn't about publicity and autographs and being famous and billy then finally does go in and acknowledge the kid but he does it in a way that fits his world and his honor still billy has not entered the world he is kind of dragging the piece of him that is still that world he was in through the rest of the world, leaving a little path of his own method in his wake. Yeah, he's like it's like he's planting seeds in the world for yeah. communities and for codes of, of conduct like like his or like what his has become. Mm-hmm. And he finally finds kind of a peace with that, kind of seeing that it wasn't pretty, but his method kind of worked in his world in the world out there. He was able to do the things and you know make make his part of of the world different. And um And it let him end his reign on his terms. Yeah, that's the good way to phrase that. Finally kind of picturing himself as he's imagined. This knight knight on his horse in shining armor. 
So we obviously found a lot to to dissect in this movie. I yeah, we've we've gone through it in more detail than we we all sometimes do. It's a it, it it's it's got a lot going on in it. One thing I do want to backtrack and talk about a little bit more. Yes, is the character of Merlin. Yes, I kind of haven't touched on Merlin through this because he's a very interesting take on Merlin, and and he's in fact the the character who is directly named something of of the Arthurian legend other than Morgan. Well, we do have an Ewain. We do have some other people who okay, we do. I guess yeah, adopted names from Arthurian legend, somewhat haphazardly. But uh, but yeah, Merlin. He is, is has the name and the position. He is the 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 sorcerer, but in this context, he is a licensed medical doctor, and he is another person who helps bridge that gap between Billy's world and the real world. In this case, it's not Billy's world and the world of contracts and legality like Steve does. It is the world of the physicality of this, the fact that these people are doing dangerous things and often need medical attention. And how many times has Billy needed to be stitched up? And is Billy's shoulder ever going to heal? And and Merlin has to deal with that. And Merlin also, though, is kind of a mystical and poetic character. Not the silent mystical presence that the the bird is later on, but the person who has kind of a mystical filter on things. And there is a reason why he is a part of this group as opposed to working in a hospital somewhere. And also Merlin is played by Brother Blue, who is an amazing person in his own right. Somebody I had heard of. Didn't know as much about until I started reading about him after rewatching this movie. But he, uh, Brother Blue, whose name was Hugh Morgan Hill, but he performed as Brother Blue. He had degrees from Harvard and Yale and a PhD from Union Institute. Oh, wow. He was, by town proclamation, the official storyteller for Boston and for Cambridge. Oh. And he taught philosophy at, I think it was Harvard Divinity School. Oh, dang. And was also very well known, not only as a storyteller, but also as a musician, as an, as an actor, and as a, a teacher and a coach in performing and in storytelling. He was a polymath when it came to performance arts and philosophy, but storytelling, as storytelling, was his big thing. So, uh, I like the fact that this movie prompted me to learn more about him. And he is an amazing guy with an amazing story. And he passed away uh, a little more than 10 years ago, I believe. Oh. But, um, but yeah, quite, quite a legacy and quite an interesting story. And all of this was after his, his service in World War II. Oh, wow. And he brings, as Merlin, this kind of... We see him being this... This guy who kind of is seeing how things are going to play out. He knows people. He knows he knows how this world that he is part of as as the magical leader is also going to interact. When someone gets hurt, he can fix them up. But he's also there getting the medical bag ready a little before that happens. He when when someone challenges him, he has the phrases ready. When when there is a concern about about the 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 normal world outside he is as prepared to talk 
as he is about the prophetic dreams Billy has been having. And at the same time, when they are sitting around a campfire at night, talking about Billy and his code versus having to deal with the real world and the things that Steve has to handle for them, Merlin suddenly has a harmonica and is punctuating parts of the conversation with this these harmonica riffs, mm-hmm. which give it a, a heightened drama and also make it seem a little more otherworldly, make it seem like a performance the way so much of Billy's life is a performance. The fact that he never drops stride means that it he almost acknowledges that the outside of the world is a performance just as much as the inside <laughs> world is. And we talked about, uh, when we were talking about Excalibur, we talked about the fact that how Nicole Williamson playing Merlin was like in a different movie from everybody else and yeah. how that fit the character. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of that with Brother Blue's depiction of Merlin. But it's more in the sense that he is not fully part of Billy's world in the way that Billy is, but he is not fully part of the outside world the way somebody like Steve is or like the people Morgan followed. Uh, is. Brother Blue's Merlin is his own character in his own place, and he has something to say to all of these different worlds. It's, he's not in a different movie, and it's not in a fourth wall breaking kind of way when I say this. He's almost aware that there's two movies going on. <laughs> he's almost like, oh yeah, you know, this place has this set of rules, that place has that set of rules, both of them are their own little things there, and I'm aware of them both. And that awareness means that he can shift how each of them is going if he's in either one. <laughs> he's got kind of the strings and the ability to move back and forth more than anyone else. And that makes him very compelling. He's the person to watch in any scene where he appears. Oh, yeah. If, if, if he is there, he is a presence. And when he's not there, the lack of him is a presence. <laughs> well, I don't think we want to uh, push this, uh, this podcast episode's running time close to that of the movie. Probably not. So, so maybe it's time to circle back around for our final questions. I am, I am less certain uh, of your answer. I'm a little less certain of my own answer okay. than I am for any other movie we've talked about. But the first question for a movie is, screen or no screen, what do you recommend? <sighs> I'm going to have to go with binge. I mean screen. <laughs> in terms of length, in terms of the way it's going to feel when you watch it, my comment there is true. It's going to feel more like you're binging one of the shows. It's got that sort of length, but honestly, I was really impressed with how much I got into this and how much I enjoyed it. It is not a mile a minute thing, but it'll, there's, there's some lulls in there, I warn you, but it is interesting and it is a fascinating and it's a take I've never seen on this kind of story that knights in armor set in this environment with that, with that, you know, that difference is interesting. And I kind of wanted to to point out and warn about the the things that made me cringe and the the drama and the the danger presented and shown and the the people getting hurt and such early on enough because I wanted to say screen and I didn't want people going in without knowing that. That's that's a, a great point, a good reason to mention those kinds of things. And uh, 
Now, I'm going to say Screen 2. And I really, it's, it's hard for me to separate this movie from Excalibur completely because the, I did see them within a month or two of one another. They came out at the same time. I was the same age. And together, they had an interesting impact on me. That's why I wanted us to address them as part of a month theme on the podcast. Because the way that I watched Excalibur was very dreamlike. Watching it late at night, up close to the TV, half asleep, I felt at the end of it as if I had been through this long and harrowing dream that had taught me things. This movie was more about how some of the things depicted in that dream can and should interact with the real world. You know, think about seeing those two movies and, and Knight Riders as the second one. When you're 15 years old, and as a 15-year-old, trying to figure out who you're going to be, who you're supposed to be, what, how you're supposed to relate to the world, and you get this movie about a character who, in the real world, is attempting to create for himself a code that he will adhere to, that will define who he is. After I watched this as a kid, I spent a couple of months processing it and thinking about it and, and trying to make sense of what it was about. Because they, it's not like they portrayed Billy as an admirable character, necessarily, or no. certainly not as a, a character to emulate in any way, except... The idea of having a code and the idea of being as honest as you possibly could in pursuing that code. It's hard for me to articulate this, but it was, it was a fascinating experience seeing this movie at that age, at that time, that watching it again brought some of that back. And it was fun to think about the, the impact that movies in general can have by thinking about the impact that this movie had. So I would say screen it. You may, if you're 15 years old and, and the same kind of kid that I was, yeah, you'll have a certain kind of experience probably. If you're not, you'll still have a certain kind of experience uh, of your own watching this movie. Yeah. <sighs> the next so. question's weird and hard too. Yeah. Revive, reboot, or rest in peace. Yeah. See, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go backwards on this because a reboot of this is interesting. Telling it in the same time doesn't work the same way. I mean, we've got that movie. It's called Knight Riders. Telling it in the now kind of reboot is a very different story because of how things have changed in the world. When this is a story about the infiltration of this little community and the, the such by a a person who wants to put them on TV and Vegas, it's different than a world where the audience might be pulling out phones and recording and where how easy it is to not have this little community scene is different. It's kind of like, you know, the dragon's gotten tougher. The, a, a Billy would not be able to fight it off the same. And that means I'm almost leaning towards a revival instead if we're going to go with either one. Because being able to tell the story of what this community became later, post-Billy, post post-Morgan, I mean, is this now a group that meets once a month out and, like, they don't tour around anymore, but they meet somewhere and they are, they take up their mantles and they 
they have a tournament and then they go back out into the world again is it still a touring group who tries to hold to a code like seeing that could be interesting that that is interesting and and we'll never know what happens after the end of this movie i never got the impression that morgan had abandoned his ambition he still wanted to be king but he wanted to be king and and in the right way and to get that crown in the right way but i still think he was interested in putting on these shows and earning money from them and mm-hmm. eventually making it bigger maybe they did get to vegas eventually but they would do so by following their own organic process i think morgan would have realized that he needs a code and would have developed one it would not have been the same as billy's but he, i think morgan knows that in order to govern others in order to lead the group he needs to govern himself, and in order to govern himself, he needs some kind of a code. So, I think that would have been interesting, but I think it would have been a long time before there was any kind of a crisis conflict to make an interesting story. Right. So, and the fact that there's so much movie we didn't get in this final edit, and the fact that, unfortunately, Romero is gone, he died in 2017, means you're going to get someone else's take no matter what. And there's always that, but it's harder to do a story that is all about this code and this thing when you don't have that person who had so much passion behind this project. But in some ways that might give us something else as well. And I can imagine a, a prequel style revival telling us the story about how this group built, but it's not really a story we need. We don't have any, we got every yeah. bit of that story that we need in the terrific exposition at the beginning of this movie. Mm hmm. So as often as we say revival in response to this question about movies, I'm not entirely sure I would rule out reboot. Really? I don't need a reboot. I'm not necessarily saying my answer is reboot, but if there was going to be a reboot, what about a reboot that takes this idea and puts it in the world of esports? Oh. Gaming. Think about it. In 1981, there were not a lot of people who pretended to be knights fighting other knights or fighting dragons. Today, there are billions of people who do that in computer games. Oh, having a, having a story of a guild that takes it seriously like that. And has this tension between commercialization versus adhering to a code. I don't think it would work. It wouldn't be the same. You wouldn't have the, the visceral, physical risk involved and that's is a big part of the story but if i were trying to make a reboot i would probably put it in some kind of vr gaming rather than small town ren fair tournament type carnivals Mm -hmm. that said no i don't need that there are plenty of movies about video games there are plenty of video games there are plenty of video games about video games i don't need a reboot of knight riders in that setting. So I'm going to say rest in peace when it comes to this movie. Uh, because it it works so well in the setting and the time that it's uh, it's given. Yeah, I think I'm sticking with my revive just because I want to know what the community has changed in that time. It, maybe it's become the thing you're describing. Maybe they still go out and and hold their jousts. But I think that seeing how that has evolved would be interesting because there's new challenges for that community after a long enough time, but it would definitely have to be set after an entire long period with a bit of a legacy. Yeah, I guess we saw how King William's 
reign ended. How would King Morgan's reign end, and would it would it end in different ways on different terms? The answer is almost certainly yes. But would it still involve a a crisis, a conflict that would make for a story? When you wind up with a a change like this, because Billy started this, but maybe you've got we had King Billy who passed it along the line to King Morgan, who passed it along the line to this person. And now we have a fourth king. And the kingdom is not the same. And what do we do? And kind of that, that kind of question where it's like, what change, how does a code change over the years in that sense? Yeah. Yeah. What's well, f- I, I was really glad to be able to introduce you to this movie. It's another movie I tried to tell you as little as I could about it beforehand. Oh, yeah. Although, if you saw the, the, the poster art, awesome poster art by Boris Vallejo, uh, but, but, you would see the contrast that the movie sets up, a, a knight in armor on a motorcycle. Yeah, it's, it's got one of those, it, it feels more fantasy adventure and it becomes it, on the poster, and then it's a story about you know, humans and, and people and the psychology and the community, and not what I expected from the poster. But following the code that we have here, uh, I believe you are, sp- you are to tell the people of, of where they must find you. Yes. Uh, well, you can find me. My, my kingdom is at bymatthewporter.com, or you can find me on Twitter as bymatthewporter. And if you go to bymatthewporter.com, you'll find links to whatever I'm doing online. And Ian, where can people find you? I can be find, found on Twitter as itemcrafting. And henceforth at itemcrafting.com. You can find me there as well. And you can find the podcast on Twitter at IMMPcast. And you can also find us online at immproject.com. And that's where you'll find all of our back episodes, including our episode about Excalibur. And you can also find a link to our Patreon. We appreciate it if anybody can uh, support us there. And if you do support us there, you get additional audio content. And if you support us there as a member of the IMMP Movie Club, you occasionally get a surprise DVD in the mail. You want to experience what it's like when, for me when we watch movies I didn't expect or know about, like this one? That's what that's for. <laughs> and you'll also find links to our shop if you like interesting uh, coffee mugs and t-shirts and things. Yes. And you'll find a contact page there. We'd love to hear from you there or on Twitter. Uh, what did you think of this movie if you've seen it? Any other interesting anachronistic sort of movies that blend ideas from multiple times and ways of life? But for now, that's all for this episode. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with more tales of media from the bygone age of the 20th century. In the meantime, go find something new to watch. <laughs>